Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the historic Christian Baker Farm near Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. And our guests today are Bill and Donna Birch, the authors of W.G., the opium-addicted, pistol-toting preacher who raised the first federal African-American Union troops. This is a, an amazing book. It's a piece of detective work that I'm so glad these two have done, and it's just an important piece of history. Welcome, Birches. Great to have you. Lawrence, thank you so much. We're grateful that we have the chance to talk about the book and talk with you about the book. As you can tell, I was very careful in reading the title <laughs> because there's a lot to it. And uh, opium there's a lot going on in that title, for sure. So a preacher who did drugs and carried guns, but yet, <laughs> you know, I'm sort of getting a yeah. picture of this. Well, that uh, doesn't get your attention, right? Uh, yeah, and this role. isn't 1967 or anything like that. This is 1860s, so. Right, right. And I understand right. you're related to this crazy guy, so <laughs> maybe, well, <laughs> maybe you could start out with uh, yes, your connection. Your connection to, I don't know how to feel about that. but <laughs> yeah, What's um, your connection to WG? And tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, sure. Now, Donna uh, has done most of the, the family work, the ancestry work uh, on this, but in a short uh, form. Uh, W.G. was, uh, Raymond was on our mother's side, uh, and he was our three-time great-grandfather, uh, you know, coming down through our mother's side. And, and he was a, a name and a story and a lore uh, in our family for many years. And uh, no one knew any concrete details, uh, but they just sort of knew the broad general paintbrush story of, of his uh, remarkable life. And uh, it was one of those things we were always going to get to, um, to try to understand it deeper. And, uh, you know, it took us reaching, uh, you know, sort of our retirement years as well as uh, the COVID pandemic uh, to finally get around to finding out what this story is all about. Um, and it was a remarkable journey uh, that brought us here. And um, it was kind of a culmination of all those events, having time, having, uh, you know, the, the situation where we could finally sit down and then research being so much more accessible uh, today than it, than it would have been at any other time. So uh, we're grateful for that. But that's how it all came together. So, yes, he, he was in our family, and we finally got to the bottom of his story, and uh, here we are. Yeah, what's well, interesting, I mean, it's all very interesting, but I remember when the proposal came to me, and I thought, oh, yeah, the first Union African-American troops. But right. this this isn't the guy. I mean, I remember... I was confused. I know just a, enough about it to be dangerous. Um, right. Stumbled on some things, and we've done some other books uh, that touch on this. But I thought this guy doesn't quite fit. And then I looked him up, and I thought, oh, okay, this is this is a different dimension to the story. So his name, William Gould Raymond, was his full name. That's correct. What years did he? Right. What years did he live? He was born in uh, Milo, New York up near the Finger Lakes um, in on July 4th, which I thought was fitting for him, July 4th of 1819. And then he lived until January 15th of 1893. Hmm. That's a good, what, 74 years roughly? 
Right. Mm-hmm. Nice long life. So he also had a Pennsylvania connection. I don't mean to get ahead of things, but maybe just uh, yeah. what, what was like that? Everyone... And at what point in his life was he around uh, Penn's woods? Well, yeah, he, you know, as his, his life and uh, career went on, uh, his, you know, he obviously was involved in many uh, avenues. Um, but, you know, his, his work led him to, and family led him to at one point, McCain County up in the northwest part of the state. Uh, I was just there this, this past week uh, doing some fishing and uh, had time to think about him walking through those, those woods uh, back in the day. But um, he, he spent time in McCain County and, and Brook, uh, Brookfield. Okay. Um, in, I think that's Tioga County. And uh, he has, you know, what, that's one of the things we've talked about is one of the remarkable things about him uh, back in that time was how mobile he was and how he, he traveled around between, uh, oh, my gosh, up and down the coast, uh, out to the Midwest, Kansas, uh, you know, of course, into Washington. And what always amazed us was logistically how he managed to be so mobile back 160 years ago. And mm-hmm. Uh, but it was horses and trains and any other walking. He was a <laughs> renowned walker. Um, he got around and, and he did spend time in, uh, in Penn's woods, as you say. And, um, you know, that's one of the many interesting uh, aspects to his life is that he was, he was so uh, transitory. And, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it makes for an interesting story. And, you know, you mentioned his middle name, Lawrence uh, Gould. Uh, and of course, you, in when you think of African American troops, of course, you think of uh, Robert Robert uh, Shaw. Yes, I had been to Robert, Robert Shaw Gould's, Gould's grave up in and, I think uh, in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, and and we've not been able to find a family uh, definitive family link there. Um, you know, you would think uh, that there probably would have been, um, but we've not yet found it. Um, they were both obviously involved very centrally and and uh, bringing African-Americans into the fold in terms of fighting uh, for, for the Union. Um, you know, of course, with the 54th of Mass. And um, that's one of the interesting things that, and I think one of the most confusing things that history uh, kind of gets more, gets wrong on this or in terms of omitting uh, is that, you know, the, the black uh, soldiers were enlisting uh, before the USCT w- within the states, and they were doing so under the, authorization generally of the governors of those states and of course states were uh, you know it was all about the states back in those days states rights it was you know the states were sort of as powerful you know as as the central government and, and so on at that point and uh, these troops were being raised at the state level uh, without Lincoln's direct authorization now he did not uh, prohibit them from doing that. He didn't, he was kind of neutral on it. Uh, and the states were raising troops in Louisiana and Massachusetts and uh, where W.G. Raymond comes in. Uh, and this is largely omitted from a lot of history uh, for reasons we can get into in a moment, but is that um, his was the first uh, regiment directly authorized by Lincoln, Lincoln, in the District of Columbia or from the District of Columbia. So it was truly the first uh, federally uh, authorized and endorsed regiment of African-American soldiers. And it you know, went on to become the first United States colored troop or first USCT. Um, but 
you know, and this is where it gets interesting uh, in the book in terms of, you know, what led to that falling through the cracks of history so much and uh, as it has. And it's, it's, you know, it's a variety of factors that we uncovered. We're yep. talking to Bill and Donna Birch, the authors of W.G., the opium-addicted, pistol-toting preacher who raised the first federal African-American Union troops. We'll be back in a minute. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors and serves readers young and old alike. Speckled Egg Press is our juvenile nonfiction imprint. Check out works from authors like Joanne Risso, author of Over the Sea and In the Field, Dan Shudder's The Mouse with a Broken Tail, or The Amazing Adventures of Solomon Screech Owl, brought to us by Beth Lencioung. Click on the Books tab at sunburypress.com and find an author and a story you'd like to know. All right, we're back with Bill and Donna Birch the authors of W.G., the opium-addicted, pistol-toting preacher who raised the first federal African-American Union troops. I just had to do that again. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we were talking about uh, the mystery here that you uncovered, the the connections. and uh, Yeah, and, and, you know, that was the only piece of the lore that we had as a family, really, was that we had this great-great-great-grandfather that had, you know, raised these African-American troops and paid for their training and provisions out of his own pocket and and you know it never was repaid and and so on and that was really the extent of the story so uh and it was a fascinating you know it's a it's it's an omission that i can't believe still existed really after you know you think of the civil war and books on the civil war can there really be any new interesting information 160 years later and and we found out yes that there you know, there is uh, there are uncover. stories to uncover. But what was interesting. So, you know, Lincoln, as we know uh, from many uh, historians and, and scholars, uh, was really on the fence for quite a while about whether or not uh, blacks should should fight uh, for the union cause. He had a lot of concerns, both political and, and for the safety of he was concerned about them being captured and their treatment and concerned about the politics of being located right in, in Washington, D.C., right in between the two, the North and the South. And, um, <clears throat> but he finally, you know, after the Emancipation Proclamation in January of, of 1863, uh, it became kind of hard to, you know, prohibit them from fighting. And many of them wanted to fight. Many blacks wanted to fight and uh, for their freedom and so forth. So it became kind of a, the decision was kind of made for him in, in effect. Um, and then once he reached that point, he's like, he knew it was not only right that they fight, but probably necessary. And it, and that turned out to be true. Um, so Lincoln went ahead and, and W.G. Raymond was looking for a new challenge at the time. Uh, J.D. Turner, uh, another chaplain uh, that he was associated with, was, was in the same situation. And they both lobbied uh, heavily Lincoln. Um, and at the same time, Frederick Douglass was was uh, in Lincoln's ear constantly about there needs to be troops from Washington of African Americans to show the to show how serious they were about this. And so uh, they lobbied W.G. and J.D. Turner lobbied uh, Lincoln and wrote letters and and Lincoln signed on and and he uh, authorized them. He appointed J.D. Turner as uh, Colonel and, and uh, W.G. Raymond as lieutenant colonel of, of what would be the first District of Columbia colored volunteers. That was how uh, it was to start. And uh, they went at it with a vengeance. And 
literally hundreds uh, of, of recruits signed up on the streets of Washington, which was a wild place at that time. So um, what faith and, was he? What denomination? W.G.? Uh, W.G. Was, was a Baptist preacher. Uh, and in, just a quick aside, his, in his early years, in his youth, he had kind of turned from the, his Baptist roots. His parents were quite faithful. And uh, he, as he wrote in his own autobiography, he got interested in worldly pursuits as a young man. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so his parents were very concerned about him. And um, he ended up attending a revival at their behest. They had essentially pleaded with him. But he went more to kind of make fun of the revival and the faithful who were gathered but it had an effect on him, and uh, from that from that day forward, he returned to his roots and remained uh, associated with the Baptist Church, and was a that, then a preacher for many, many, many. Years. Would you say that was part of the Second Great Awakening? I don't know if you're familiar with the yeah yeah okay yeah exactly, and and that does bring up an interesting point. You know, as we get into the Washington and, and the establishment of these first troops. Uh, W.G. was, uh, you know, he had enlisted as an infantryman in the 86th of New York uh, prior to that. And and he had been a preacher of a a Baptist church. Uh, And, you know, he kind of felt uh, congregation asked him why he wasn't fighting. He was always promoting people signing up to fight for the to end slavery and so forth. And uh, he thought about it and and said, yeah, you know, even though he was 43 years old and a little overweight, and had children. And had by children, the time. and was a preacher. He, he, and, and this is what makes him such a, an interesting character. You know, he enlisted, and uh, he went and met with uh, General Robert Van Volkenberg, uh, who took gave W.G. authority to raise a company, uh, and he did, and it was in the uh, 86th of New York for the Steuben Rangers, and and he he served with them, and and that's how he actually wound up in Washington yeah. uh, as part of the 86, and then. Uh, Lincoln appointed him as chaplain of uh, the Washington hospitals at the time because uh, there was concern that with all of the war wounded, they needed, you know, they needed uh, divine help to with their egregious injuries and they needed chaplains and he appointed uh, Raymond uh, as chaplain of the Washington hospitals. So was was this a... he, was, this a, uh, was this a midlife crisis, or was this uh, yeah, him it, following exactly. his his and, faith uh, and, and his you know his abolitionist beliefs? Yeah, it, yeah, and and he, uh, you know, that's how pro- he got the proximity to Lincoln and sort of in the center of things between Lincoln and, and Secretary of or the uh, head of the War Department Edwin Stanton, and uh, that he found himself right in between them and mm-hmm. with. And uh, when he was honorably discharged from the 86 uh, in Washington, is he found himself with time and energy, and, and he that's when he began lobbying to raise these troops. Now, so when Lincoln sent them uh, after the, their meeting uh, and uh, you know Lincoln's approval to move forward with this, Lincoln sent them to uh, Secretary Stanton, and uh, that was an interesting move because he basically sent them saying, here's your two new commanding officers of the first uh, District of Columbia of Colored Volunteers. And Stanton reacted uh, 
as as he was known to do, he was quite, you know, it was an affront to him. He felt that was his job and his, mm. even though Lincoln was commander in chief, uh, he felt that, you know, personnel decisions and things like that rested with him. And, and he was a troublemaker right from the beginning with respect to these, these regiments. And he withheld appropriations. He, uh, you know, <laughs> did most. He created new we, uh, uh, requirements yeah. for the, the number be, of people who needed to be right. drawn Stanton, together and before they would be. Stanton is a very party. interesting uh, historic figure, and uh, well, we are going to have to take a break. But I just wanted yes. to say that you know, there's a lot around the Lincoln assassination where his behavior Absolutely. was was a bit okay. strange too at that that point. All right, we're talking to Bill and Donna Birch, the authors of WG. We'll be back in a minute. Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent authors and thinkers. Radio Free Press is our imprint for politics and social issues. Check out authors such as Pat LaMarche, author of Still Left Out in America, The State of Homelessness in the United States, Jason Altmeyer's Dead Center, and A Year of Change and Consequences by Mark Single. Find out more by clicking the Books tab at sunburypress.com. We're back talking to Bill and Donna Birch, the authors of WG, the opium-addicted, pistol-toting preacher who raised the first federal African-American Union troops. And we were talking about uh, Secretary of War Stanton and his, oh, I guess disruption or passive-aggressive behavior towards this whole idea. I I don't know how you characterize it. I think that's a good way to characterize it. Uh, it. You know, that's kind of was his response. He threw down the orders, you know, on the table and was quite dramatic about it. And uh, it was clear that he was not a sponsor of, of Lincoln's initiative with respect to those troops and W.G. Raymond's uh, appointment and J.D. Turner's appointment. Um, and, you know, as it turns out later, as the readers will see it, you know, that it, it rears its head again many years later. Um, the, the tension between uh, Lincoln and Raymond and, and Stanton. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that was remarkable, and we, we want to make sure we make, a, make this point, is that throughout this, what was remarkable to us was that the issues that are covered in this book and, and are so relevant to today, you know, 160 years later. And it's, in a lot of ways, it's disappointing because we're still dealing with the same issues. But uh, you know, when you look at a divided country, you look at opium or opiate addiction and, and other forms of addiction, mm-hmm. and you, you look at um, the uh, racial tensions, uh, and you look at, you know, at times a sort of a truth-challenged government at times. Um, you know, here we are 160 years later, and those all of those could have come right from, you know, the newspaper's headlines. Today. Yeah, let's and that's talk just, yeah. was remarkable to us. The, uh, and a lot of those were sort of the genesis of that period of time in the 1800s was kind of the genesis of the op- opium addiction problem. Now, that that comes out of the China trade that was opened up in the early 1800s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that, that is true. And then the, uh, the key part of that is the injuries that were inflicted because the weaponry had changed, mm-hmm. uh, because there was so much fighting, um, on our soil. And, and there was also people moving into territories that they hadn't been a part of before. And that spread things like, you know, pathogens, smallpox, that kind of thing. So along was the development of the hypodermic needle, 
that uh, had been invented by a person named Alexander Wood, and that made the delivery of opium opiates into the wounded easier. Uh, and they found that it worked with people who had stomach issues. Uh, and if there were those who were suffering from things like diarrhea, which would have been common at the time, that the opiates, which any opium addict can tell you, could uh, stem that. And as a result, a lot of people became addicted without any advance warning that that was the outcome that would come from their use including of the drug, including WG. Um, and that that was a plague that he fought himself for over a decade. Well, you know, I I did a, a book called A Pennsylvania Mennonite and the California Gold Rush. My great, great, great uncle went west for the gold rush and ends up in San Francisco before he comes back around 1851, two, three, somewhere in there. He mentions opium dens in San Francisco. And San Francisco was a new city. There were a lot of Chinese miners who came over to uh, work in the gold fields as well. People came from all over the world. So, you know, we had drug problems in San Francisco even back then. Actually, yeah. we have opium, opiate problems yeah. everywhere. Exactly. Uh, so um, how did WG get addicted? Is, there, is, that, a, um, is that evident to you or you, how do you know that yes. he was a victim of Yes, I think uh, he had a friend who had been part of his one of his um, congregations, and uh, his name was Dr. Kent, and he was a very well-regarded homeopath and became a, a teacher of medicine for a lot of students and was affiliated with Hanneman College. But what happened at the time is Dr. Kent treated W.G., who had a series of of issues um, relating his bladder, relating his to his kidneys, his liver, and it really got in the way of WG's ability to live as he wanted to live. Um, he wanted to thrive, and so Dr. Kent uh, had prescribed it. Hmm. He prescribed Bigelow's uh, opium, and it did provide relief to WG and. His use continued, and eventually, it you know, he came to realize that he couldn't face much of anything without his opium. And the truth is, his diseases and his issues had remained. So it wasn't that they that the opium cured him; it made it able, it made him able to continue his mission. Right. Um, so he eventually uh, relinquished his reliance on opium in a a very profound description in the book of what that was like for him. Uh, it was a very lonely, uh, faith-filled journey that wasn't easy in any part, but he did, uh, with the help of his faith, release, his, uh, release the hold of opium on his, on his being. So he goes from a revival from the Second Great Awakening to... Uh being a preacher, to being a soldier, to being a leader of the African-American troops, as we've discussed, proponent right. for that, um, dealing with opium addiction. And I think about his the span of his life. Think about the technology that he experienced. He goes from covered wagons to trains, <laughs> and then oh, eventually, the t you know, the telegraph's coming on at that point, the telephone later. Um, exactly. The, uh, yeah, that's, we, we marveled really at the same... I mean, it's, uh, 
by the time you know, he's passing. The telegraph, you know, an interesting side note is that Lincoln you know, was very dependent on the telegraph to get feedback from the field uh, right. of war. And the telegraph was located in the War Department, and Lincoln would have to walk from the White House to the War Department to get the telegraph. And he would sleep on a cot uh, in the War Department to be uh, be right there. So uh, it's just we just marveled uh, at you know the <laughs> the challenges they faced and, and and how different things are in that respect today. So did he maintain his faith throughout his life when he passed? Was he, he did, still a preacher? Yes, I mean he had questions uh, as any I think as any faithful person does. But um, he had he he. I believe what I would say was his greatest gift and greatest challenge was that he found ultimately that he couldn't be contained within a denomination, Hmm. that his uh, belief system couldn't align fully with any particular denomination. And he, he also believed that people could be saved, uh, but they, it was, upon God, not so much what human beings could do for one another. And he, his, his faith took different forms, but he always retained a deep connection to God. Yeah, he witnessed an awful lot in his lifetime. And I can't imagine his perceptions of Reconstruction and the, the failures there. I mean, probably very hopeful back in 1863 when he was doing his work with the troops and, you know, what might right. happen post-Civil War. And, of course, that right. that doesn't happen. And, hey, we only have a few few minutes left. He's been described many times as, as zealous uh, yeah. by, you know, by different historians. And, and uh, that I think that captures him perfectly. He, uh, he was always eager to um, go on to the next thing and make a difference. It was always about making a difference. Uh, you know, he and he his beliefs and and you know, his abolitionist beliefs were quite well documented, and, and he always wanted to be making some kind of a contribution. And uh, he, he was a really, uh, he was a remarkable person, you know, at the end of the day. Well, I always think, you know, I was an economics major in, in college, and we studied micro and macro economics. And the thing that I kept thinking of with with him as we did the research, as we wrote, as we talked about him, he had the the macro like he he had these beliefs that were on a high plane that were effective toward all human beings but he was very much um aligned with down at the micro level people meeting him and he meeting people had brought really different aspects into his life and i i always am reminded that he would see someone when they were in when they were infantrymen marching through Maryland trying to do some heavy duty work there. Um, he, he came upon a woman who had been enslaved. She was elderly. Very. She reported she was over a hundred years old, and had borne ten children, three of whom were uh, from her uh, master, as they called it, and. Uh, when she was no longer of service to her master, they, she lived in a little hut on the property, but she had nothing that was given to her to sustain her. And when W.G. came upon her, he asked her a lot of questions, and they kept her in firewood and food for the rest of her life. 
uh, because that was the right thing to do on a human level. And then when she passed, he went to the uh, this individual who had enslaved her and said, you know, what will you do with her? And he said, I'll have nothing to do with her. Mm-hmm. And so they also crafted a, a ceremony and a grave and a, you know? a coffin for her and buried her. That says so, so I much. Think, you know, that was something I saw throughout his life that he he could relate on a very personal individual level and feel things deeply at that level, but also be part of a systems thing and say, you know, slavery's wrong. We, we need to abolish it. We are unfortunately out of time, but I think that sums him up beautifully. Right. Um, Thank mic- you. Macro and micro level and how he touched lives. Uh, Bill and Don, it's been great having you. It's been our pleasure. We really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Lawrence. All right. We'll have you back for the next book, whatever that may be. Hopefully the title isn't quite so long. <laughs> <We've been laughs> you got ta- it. <laughs> I think the odds are with you. All right. We've been talking to Bill and Donna Birch, the authors of WG, the opium-addicted, pistol-toting preacher who raised the first federal African-American Union troops. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.